Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Megan Racer is four years sober, and she is a light. Her story is compelling, and it's basically ripped from a Hollywood script. A straight-A student growing up from a good family in Arizona, and she ends up in prison uh, after working for a cartel. I mean, that's basically all you need to know. But putting the bow on it is that she works in recovery now at Camelback Recovery in Phoenix, We talk about all this, we talk about some deep stuff, and one of the things that really attracted me to Megan is that she's as vulnerable as it gets, and there is such power in that vulnerability, and I know just from listening to her stuff and reading her stuff, she helped me, so I know she is going to help you. But first, my main man, Kevin Souza. Um, all right. So first of all, thank you for joining me. Um, your story is unbelievable. And the one thing, um, as somebody in sobriety who works a 12 step deal, and I think like there's a lot, um, there's a lot of power and vulnerability. When I hear you tell your story, uh, you see somebody like you that's really put together. And then I hear some of the things you share and it reminds me of how broken we can be. And, and where we can get to ultimately with, with, with the hard work. Uh, and I had the gift of desperation. It sounds like you, we all have our own story, but your story really spoke to me. And I, I, I guess I just want to start at the beginning. You, you grew up, I guess, like in the desert in, in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. For like maybe um, older teenager, we moved out there like my before my freshman year of high school started so moved out to the desert you know my dad really really likes riding motorcycles and that's something i really got into because of my parents like our thing was we hung out as a family but outside the home right so we'd go to the sand dunes and there was always partying or we would go to the lake and there was like you know we're on the boats water skiing uh, wakeboarding and then there's always like aspect of drinking that occurs after. So alcohol was never an issue. Even when I consumed it at a very young age, it was just kind of socially acceptable. Yeah, so, your, your family, it sounds like there was a lot of alcohol around you and it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. No, it was never perceived as a big deal. Like my parents, you know, my dad didn't really drink too much. But my mom enjoyed drinking, um, but she's like a completely functional human being, right? She can have a glass of wine at the end of the night and go to her nine to five job that she's had for like the last 40 years. Um, and no interruptions in her life versus, you know, somebody like you or I pick up a drink and we're either dead or in jail or, well, rehab maybe. But um, <laughs> If we're lucky. If we're lucky. Really? I mean, that's <laughs> the truth, right? Rehab. Yeah, no, that's the absolute truth. Like that, that is a blessing to be able to walk into the, into a rehab or, even just walk into the rooms, right, and, and, and get it, where some people 
you know, like myself, where it's just, it's never going to be done until like a really, um, until a higher power comes in and like takes me from where I'm at and puts me somewhere else. Kind of like the situation that happened this last time. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to stop. And this last time, you, yeah. There was something that definitely stopped you, uh, and oh, and you you're four years sober now, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you're a kid, you, you you start to drink and you're getting straight A's, I guess. When do you notice your first turn uh, into leveling up as far as mind altering substances and alcohol is concerned? Uh, the level up that happened around 18 years old. So I'd already graduated from high school. I was in community college at the time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do academically, but I knew I wanted to go to college. And that was just like a more, it was a cheaper, you know, cheaper way of getting what I needed versus going to university. Um, but I met um, like the first love of my life, right? He was like seven years older than I was. Um, he was from upstate New York, had like a big attitude, um, very, he's just a very well-liked person had a great personality um very manipulative though i came to find out so that's when the drug usage started um i had never tried drugs prior to that you know i think i had smoked marijuana a couple of times and i hated it and it was just not anything i wanted to do i drank you know i i, I do remember times where i drank to the point of, of blacking out but it never was a problem growing up because I was able to just like chop that up to a fun night and then you move on you know you do what you got to do and then that fun night will come again maybe over the weekend um so like drug usage you know it was uh 18 was with cocaine and opiates yeah I heard you tell the story this guy you 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 fall in love with he comes home one night uh you know you Mm -hmm. you've been drinking and he and he's just like hey like here's what I got and you started to do it, and you talked about, for me, alcohol, and especially cocaine, right, it was like, that was my first like spiritual experience where I was like, I'm gonna, oh my gosh, like I feel like I am a whole person now. And, and I've heard you talk about that transition, and it's a huge mind fuck, right? But whatever, you know, and you, you talk about self-worth too. What do you think makes it, like, I, I was the same way, and still can be today. What do you think makes us have that, that whole, and that self-worth? Is it just being an alcoholic or an addict? Because you said that the other day, I was listening to you and I was like, I want to ask her, why are we like that, you know? I mean, some say it's like the spiritual malady, like not having a connection to our higher power, needing to fill that hole with outside things when like it's our higher power that will fulfill that for us. I mean, a lot of like what I've learned to be true about myself is a lot of how I felt about myself was something that I was taught. So I know mental health has a lot to to do with that and the way my brain is like just functions normally, right? It was just this perfect storm. If I, if a drug enters my body, then like it does just something completely abnormal that doesn't do for most, right? Most people don't snort cocaine and go, wow, I feel like I'm home or like snort an opiate and feel like, God, I feel good in my skin. You know, it does something different for people. Um, a lot of people on opiates don't get energy, right? But some people <laughs> they get a ton of energy. And it, it just, again, it feels like that home space. Um, so coupled with that, and then like just being taught, you know, not being taught how to, how to find worth in self, 
right? I, I love my mother to death. And, you know, it's just this like cycle, right? And she didn't love herself very much and it showed. Um, there was always a, something that was wrong with her appearance, something that was wrong with her. And that was perpetuated by like how my dad would communicate with her, right? So now she's even, she's beaten down even more um, just kind of verbally, you know, like, hey, you should lose weight when she just had a baby, right? Like things like that. Yeah. So then that, that gets passed down, right? Like all the traumas from my, my mom, her mom, and all of them, right? It gets passed down continuously. And then it gets to me and it's like, well, I've got a lot of my grandparents' genes, right? Like my grandfather, he's, he was a massive alcoholic, you know? Um, and so it, it's just, it was the way it was going to be and supposed to be, right? This was my path and my purpose. But that worthiness component, I just never learned how to love myself, you know? And I didn't know what that looked like. And then I think, like, with my mental health um it really pushed me over the edge. And when I found drugs and alcohol, it was just like, oh, this is this is the thing that's going to shut my brain off. Like, this is what's going to make my brain stop telling me these awful things because I don't know how to make it stop. You know, I had been to therapy as a kid and they were just like, listen, just say positive affirmations. Like, that's all you have to do. And it was like, I don't believe them though. Like, how long do I have to look in the mirror and say this and, and still not believe what I'm saying? Right. I just wasn't buying into it. But like there was a lot of work that needed to happen prior to me just saying, Megan, I love you. Like, Megan, you're beautiful. Yeah. And it's funny. I can totally um, relate. It's kind of when you're an alcoholic and you have that spiritual malady that you reminded me of, it is what it is. And there's only one really one way for me in my experience, you know, with decades, a couple decades out there of using and drinking um, to fill that void. And it's and it's for me, it's vulnerability, 12 step, you know, that stuff, getting sober. And, and for you, but before you got sober, you do the cocaine and then the opiates kind of really round out the circle. Oh, yeah. And then what starts, oh, yeah. to, what starts to happen when that picks up? Ooh, um, so it was a, somewhat of a slow progression for me when it came to that. Um, I, I guess I just didn't have a voice. Like I had such a big voice. In, in high school, right? And I was so passionate and I found college and and I had such a, a voice for injustices that were happening and like all this stuff is building. And then when it came to my relationships, I just didn't have a voice. And once I dropped out of college my senior year, mind you, one class short of getting my bachelor's degree, it was like- And you're going, no to, you're going to Arizona State, right? Yeah, I was yeah. going to Arizona State for criminal justice. And I dropped out my senior year because I, I just, I wanted to, to do drugs. Like I didn't want to study anymore. You know, like none of that mattered. And I also have like maybe, you know, just success scares me. It doesn't really scare me today, but back then it did. Like achieving something and accomplishing something great was so far away from what I thought I was worthy of that I would completely sabotage myself into believing I don't deserve that and you know obviously really kick my drug habit up up a notch um yeah sorry and no no track. no you're you're so you're in a relationship um and, and the opiates start to take off and how, how is the relationship going I heard you mention you know that there's there's abuse and somebody that 
somebody that I, I, I know and I, I saw them, you know, a domestic violence survivor, and, and, and she mentioned if you are in a relationship where there's abuse, you're actually more likely to be in a relationship with abuse again. Did you, do you find that to be true? Absolutely. You know, a lot of a lot of the people that I chose to have in my life, especially to have intimate relationships with, um, they were the same. It was like the same prototype, this different person inside the body, you know, and um, it, it opened my eyes. It was uh, it wasn't a world I was used to. Right. Like my, my dad never hit my mom. That was just not something that happened in our household. Um, and so the first time that anything violent happened it was just so surreal for me so i didn't i guess a lot of what happened was you know he was battling his own drug addiction and i was super naive and i didn't know i didn't really know much about drug addiction i didn't know how addictive opiates were um and i didn't know how much like testosterone can change a person or cocaine can change a person right um i just saw erratic behaviors happening like i'd get home from work and um um, these accusations would be coming and like the house is getting destroyed and like I'm cutting my foot on a piece of glass and it's like, you know, having to prevent this 200 plus pound man from like killing himself. Like it, it was just, a, it was a weird night. Like that was my introduction into chaos and, you know, nothing in my brain told me like you need to leave, like it's going to progressively get, get worse. Right. Nothing in my brain told me that. It just said, like, kind of go into shutdown mode, forget that happened and move on because he forgot it happened. Like, he's not talking. Yeah. You about wake it. up in the morning and you don't even talk about it. Like, that's, and, and I kind of grew up now, but I didn't have the abuse of my family, but I definitely grew up in a family where my mom was like an Italian and my dad was like Scottish, Irish, Portuguese. And like, he had the real alcoholism in, in his family. And, he married this Italian woman and it kind of screwed his game up because she wanted to talk about all the shit that was going on. You know, like, like all of her, all, all of his son's alcoholism and his alcoholism. And, but when I got around his family, they used to say it was like they would bury their heads in the sand. Like if something crazy happened the next morning, you just didn't talk about it. Right. And that was, I mean, that was kind of a common theme in my household that like you just don't talk about stuff like I've, I've had a conversation with my mom recently and you know we're kind of talking about like how I advocate you know for substance use and mental health and in prison reform and things like that and I, I talk about these things and she's like yeah there's just sometimes I wish you wouldn't talk about certain things and you know just like that's just where she's at, right? And it, it reminded me of how I grew up because, like, that feeling I, I got, right? It was like, ugh, like, I want to talk about this. Like, I can't suppress this anymore. It has to be talked about. And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm totally okay with the judgment that comes my way from being completely vulnerable because that's what being vulnerable is. If I'm willing to open up and talk about something and any kind of judgment comes my way, like, it is what it is. Like, at least I got to talk about this. I get it out. There's less shame. And, I mean, the hope at the end of the day is that, like, I get to help. You're helping a shitload of people. I mean, and that's kind of the magic in it. You know, you're, you're helping so many people. And, and, and back to your story, you, the, the drugs are really starting to get ratcheted up. And, and when do you end up, you continue going, and we can relate to this, right? A lot of people that have gone deep into the wilderness, bad relationship to bad relationship, to back and then to, to bad again. How does that progression go for you? I know heroin comes into the picture. 
Yeah. So I, I ended up getting in a relationship after that, not a good relationship. That person is actually addicted to heroin. And since, you know, he's doing fantastic now, but um, it was just an introduction into that world. And I was just like, wait a minute, like, why can't you stop using heroin? Like, I didn't get it. I had never made that crossover from pharmaceutical prescriptions to street drugs, right? I didn't get the physical dependency um, with that drug. But when I met my children's father, at that point, you know, I was still in college. Um, I had dropped out probably a year into knowing him. And he was my way of getting high. Because at that point, um, I guess I, I was learning. I was learning from every man I had been with previous to him on like, how are you manipulating? Like, how are you creating a situation to where you have power, right? This is your and side of the like, street now, right? Oh, this is my side yeah, of the street yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I learned. You know, I picked up a lot of things. And then, you know, it's like the, this progression, right? Where I would never hit back, but hit me now. And like, I, I can't guarantee that won't happen, you know? Um, but I, I learned, I learned tricks of the trade, right? And it was like, okay, well, you know, men for me currently um, are shelter, food, um, and drugs. Like, that's what I need out of a man. And, you know, my children's father was able to help me with shelter and drugs, right? And I, I, I used him for that. Like, that was the purpose behind us being together. I don't think on my side of the street, at least, there was never really love for him. You know, I love that he gave me two wonderful kids that I get to take care of today. But like, there was just never love. It was about the drugs, and that's it. Um, and so that relationship, you know, I, I get, I drop out my senior year. I get pregnant with our daughter. Um, I'm still like taking, you know, prescription opiates. I'm, I'm trying to stop, but I can't. Like, I don't know about the rooms at this time. I'm like. You're trying to kick opiates and, and, and you're, you're about to have a baby and you don't know, right. you don't know what to do and, no, and, and you can't no, stop I, because I, you can't just flip a switch with that stuff. Absolutely not. Like it's a mental dependency at this point. It wasn't necessarily physical. Like if I stopped, I wouldn't have these symptoms of withdrawal, but like there was the mental withdrawal of it and the obsessive component and I didn't know how to switch those off and I didn't know if I wanted to. Like, I wanted to stop using because, like, you want your baby to be healthy. And as a mom, that's what you should want to do and should do. But, like, as an addict, I didn't want to. And so it's like I'm fighting these two different internal, like, demon and an angel, right? <laughs> like, you should be this way, but you're this way. Like, yeah, you know, I, I always pick the addict side of me, always, because um, it's comfortable. And so around seven months, I was able to stop. Um, cause I was getting really, you know, I was getting pretty pregnant and, um, I knew that if I tested positive for anything, she'd be taken. So, um, I stopped around seven months and she was born. And at this time I wasn't really with dad. Um, you know, at this point in time, he had actually found heroin and didn't tell me right away. And I, I found out, um, again, I don't know the physical dependency of heroin at this point. And I'm just not understanding, again, in this relationship, like, why can't you just stop using heroin? Like, it doesn't make sense. Um, so I have our daughter, and it's about two months in. I'm living with my my cousin in, like, a smaller town in Maricopa. And, um, you know, I'm like, okay, let, let's have dad come back around, 
right? So he comes back around and I find heroin again, right? I find it in his truck and I, I bring it in the house and like I, I said, I found it. Like I found your drugs again. And I'm like, guess what? I'm going to, I'm going to do them. And he's like, okay, just give me a little bit. And then you do what you've got to do. I'll bring more. I was like, all right. And so my, you know, my daughter's two months old at this time. And I pick up way worse than when I <laughs> had stopped using. Right. It was just, it was a whole different world crossing over into hard drugs. And the um, physical dependency, you talk about that. What's, what is the difference when you transition from opiates and now you're doing heroin? Hey there, homeowners. Is it time to give your yard a complete makeover this summer? Villani Landshapers, a local family-owned business, has been transforming landscapes for more than 20 years. Villani Landshapers specializes in landscape design build, retaining walls, outdoor living spaces, and so much more. Request your free consultation today and check out their gallery of residential work at villani-landshapers.com. From the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins is a propulsive and vivid memoir about the journey to sobriety and self-love amidst addiction, privilege, racism, and self-sabotage. Best-selling author Holly Whitaker calls it an irresistibly delicious story. And MacArthur Foundation fellow and best-selling author Kiese Lehman says Stash is emotionally riveting. Buy Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins now, wherever books are sold. Welcome to One Star Rewind, a new podcast about those dreaded one-star reviews that every business owner hates to receive, but yet every customer loves to read. During this podcast... We will peel back that one-star review to better understand how it happened, when it happened, and what the business owner is doing after receiving that one-star review. This podcast will be about love, hate, and laughter. On One Star Rewind, we will meet with real business owners who will tell their stories and how they do rely on reviews for their business. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or download us at roguemedianetwork.com. Please subscribe, but only rate and review for not a one-star review. Join us each time for a new review and a new story. Frozen, Frozen, Heroes, gonna tell you about Frozen, Frozen, Heroes, gonna tell you about. Hey, I'm Zach. And I'm Mike. And we have a fantastic new podcast to tell you about. Bros, foes, and heroes. It's the two of us looking into the world of comics, breaking down some characters that you may have never heard of, and some that are just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, so Zach comes up with a character each time, and uh, I go into it just completely blind. I don't know who this person is or what their abilities are or anything, and and basically I guess we kind of go over their origin story and just some of the ridiculous stuff that maybe especially golden age stuff oh golden age stuff is always the best and we will make sure to highlight all of the shenanigans and just absolute weirdness of everything that's right so subscribe today and uh, follow us on instagram at bros bros heroes and if you don't i know where you live not really but please subscribe (laughs) bros and bros and heroes um, 
What are we doing here, Rusty? What are we going to do? Uh, yep, we're doing the uh, King of the Hill Rewatch Podcast. King of the Hill yes, Rewatch sir. Podcast. Yeah, so we're going to go through one episode at a time. Uh, come along for the ride with us. Come check it out. And, and give me give me a good um, like Dale Gribble quote to go out on. Wingo! Yeah, Wingo. <laughs> Wingo. Wingo. All right. Well, join us. Uh, join us for uh, the uh, King of the Hill Rewatch Podcast. in the heart of Texas. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Do you hear that? It's coming from the house. It's coming from inside the house. Uh, do you mean? Could it be? The Walter House. New from Rogue Media, two haunted hotties talking about haunted places. Every episode, we dive deep into the darkest places and give you a bit of history. We're getting spooky in all the right places. You've gobbled your last ghoul. Follow along for the craziest and spookiest stories with Debbie's Dark Tourism. The Stanley Hotel, Winchester House, The Alamo, Hotel Monte Vista, and more spooky places. Find us at the underscore Poltergals. P-O-L-T-E-R-G-A-L-S. Look over your shoulder. It's us, the Poltergals. Wherever you consume the podcast, you can find us there. I mean, it's the the body chills, vomiting, like you have can't like uncontrollable bowel movements. Um, the anxiety is through the roof. Like I had anxiety on prescription meds, but nothing, nothing like I like it happened on heroin. I was just I remember distinctly one night, you know, I went and made my daughter a bottle, and I got up and I'm like, wow, I just I'm so anxious, like I can't sleep, I'm really fidgety, like I don't feel that good. And I didn't even, like, just so just naive, I guess. I don't know. I didn't understand I was, like, going through my first withdrawal. I quickly found out that's what it was, and it was an every night, you need to get this. So I was just, I was that type of drug, like, user that had a job, and I made sure that I, I made enough to get what I needed and enough to take care of my daughter. And, and you're working um, for the Maricopa County court system. Not at this time. So okay. I was like working um, at that point, like right when my daughter was born, I was working at like a nightclub. So once about around two years old, yeah, my daughter was around two years old is when CPS got called on me. And um, dad had gone back to Missouri at this time. CPS was called and they opened up a case for both of us. Um, so we both have to do the whole, you know, like testing and, the psych test and all of that, right? Um, my daughter is put in placement with her aunt on his side, which I agreed to. And um, just through the whole thing, right? I, I got sober when CPS came into the picture in June 2014. CPS is interesting um, because they'll tell you they're going to, you've got consequences and they're going to take your kids, but they don't necessarily, and I, and I work with CPS here sometimes, they, they want to do the best they can, but they don't really always direct you to, you know, treatment right. and stuff like that. They're just like, stop. Yeah. Well, so with CPS, when they came into my life, yeah, they're like, you need to stop. And I was like, okay, well, 
I'll go to detox and I went to detox and I'm like, Hey, I can't stop. And they're like, Oh, well, we'll see if we can set you up for an appointment for Suboxone. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, it'll probably be a couple weeks out. And I was like, ah, <laughs> you know, obviously like, we went yeah. right back to the, like I went right back to it. Like, I didn't know, like, I just didn't know the world of treatment. And it's not something they come in, like, um, you know, and, and try to save the day. They're just like, hey, you need to stop using and you need to test clean, which I couldn't, right? So they opened up a case, neither um, put the data I could test negative. Um, so while that's going on, like, dad comes back into the picture. He's uh, back in Arizona. And we're both testing for a facility out here through GCS, um, you know, who, like, does random tests for us. And we see each other, right? And uh, it's this magical moment. <laughs> Where you're getting drug tested. Right. And we're both getting drug tested. And, like, you know, we hadn't spoken and on the like on the phone or seen each other for months and months and months at this point. I'm, like, six months sober. And he had left a couple of months before that. So, like, eight or nine months had been since we'd seen each other. And, you know, he comes and let's get some dinner. And, like, okay. So, like, we meet up for dinner and, you know sparks start to fly like we're both in the right state of mind um and then we get pregnant with our son <laughs> and a, a one night like yeah uh-huh um, oh yeah so I, I i found out like i know within two weeks that i'm pregnant absolutely no i'm pregnant and i remember telling him like hey, i'm gonna get a test and you know if he finds out we both find out i'm pregnant and, um, you know, he wasn't very happy. Like, he wasn't excited about it. I mean, I wasn't in a good position, right? I'm, like, living in a halfway house at the time. I'm pregnant for the second time. I don't even have rights to my daughter. Like, what the heck is wrong with me? And I'm pregnant with a man who I know I don't love. And I know I don't want to be with, right? And um, so he, you know, towards, like, a couple months in, he's just like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with him. Like, I don't, I don't want our son. And it just didn't make sense to me. You know, he wanted our daughter, but he didn't want our son. Um, so about you know, 5th of May, yeah, Cinco de Mayo. So Cinco de Mayo comes along, and we're dealing with a CPS case. The CPS case has been open since June of the year before, right? And it's the 5th of May. Like, they keep this case going. And I get a – like, I, I – I, see his sister because she and I were close at the time and she was like oh my god you know he just tried to kill himself he's in the hospital right now like we've got to get out to Queen Creek this area in Arizona and um I, I was devastated like are you, are you kidding me you know like did this really happen and I mean it did you know I, I call I remember calling him on the phone and I told him while he um, was at the behavioral health center after his attempted suicide, and I was like, "Hey, like I just found out we're having a son," and I, I just remember him being like, I, "I don't want to be a part of his life." And you know, I, I guess the most clarity a human can have is after an attempt, and he—I mean—he was pretty clear that he didn't want him, and actions proved that, right? So that all happens, you know, we eventually get the CPS case closed. My daughter's reunified with me. I'm maintaining sobriety. I'm working at the Superior Court. Like, I'm doing something I really wanted to do. Like, the ultimate goal in going to college was to be an attorney. You know, I, I love arguing. I have strong opinions. And, you know, I, I felt like I could represent somebody very well um, as a defense attorney. Like, like I had a really... Um, 
like my undergrad, right? I, I had a hyper focus on the prison population. Like that was that was my jam, right? Like I remember going uh, for one of my classes. We went to um, one of the federal prisons that's out here in Arizona, and that federal prison that I went to and toured as a student was actually the prison that I went to as an adult. Oh man. <laughs> like you know, we're all like going up to him, like, oh, this looks really familiar, you know. Um, there's just been so many ties into like the criminal justice system, like on both sides, you know. Uh, but like, I get the job with the court system, and I'm just, I'm loving it, right? It's very challenging. Like, I'm dealing with all types of things, like criminal cases, probate, civil, family. Like, I'm learning as much as I humanly can. It's so interesting. And you're me. sober. And, when I first started, yes. Are you going to so, Are you going to meetings or are you in the rooms or? Yeah. So I, at the time, I was going to Narcotics Anonymous, okay. and um, I do AA today. But um, at that time, I, I, I mean, I built such a beautiful family in Narcotics Anonymous. You know, that was my introduction into the rooms, and like, I remember going in so broken, and they, I, I found like my best friend, right? And I remember sitting sitting in a seat and she's sitting across from me and I see her and I, and she speaks and I'm like, Oh my God, God like that's going to, you're going to be my friend, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> and then in the back is our other, like our other really good friend. And I hear him laughing. Right. I'm like, I'm going to punch this guy. <laughs> like who is this guy? <laughs> right. And he ends up being one of my best friends. Like we, we just formed such a cool group. And what was really awesome is, um, you know, my, my, my girlfriend, she, she had a daughter that she was raising and she let me help her raise her while I had my daughter taken from me, you know, and that, I mean, that helped me out tremendously. Like it, it, it filled a part of my heart I needed to fill because I still, you know, I still have that maternal instinct, you know, I'm a mom at a distance, but it really helped, um, help me get through that transition of not having my daughter with me. Um, but during, you know, so I'm working at the court system, I'm going to meetings, right. And I just, I remember this day distinctly. So where I worked is like where I got sober and where I went to meetings. So I knew a lot of the people that would walk through the doors, right? Like there would be like a couple of people a week I knew. And I remember this one girl came up to the filing counter and she's like, hey, like I, she needed legal advice, right? And I was just like a filing clerk. Like I'm not, I'm not an attorney. I can't give you legal advice. This is basically what I told her. And, you know, she took offense to that. And she, she basically blew my anonymity to everybody. You know, she yelled it out. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Like, I didn't tell, you know, I didn't tell my employer about my past. Like, I didn't think they'd want me after that. So, so yeah, after that, I didn't go back to a meeting around there. And I stopped going to meetings. Like, I, I guess I copped a really big resentment with that. And it's not the program's fault, right? Like, things happen in life. Um, but, but it's I amazing it's and it, what, what, what will bump us off. I mean, it doesn't take much. You know what no. I mean? Like, and, no. and sometimes it's the disease kind of working overtime back there. Like, yeah, you don't need to go. And here's your reason not to go. Because, right. yeah, yeah, I totally can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm working for the courts and um, <clears throat> their dad comes back into the picture and he moves in with me and like, you know, he's on my couch. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the the thing was, like, for a good year, I was like, hey, please come back. Like, I want you to meet your son. I want you to know who he is. Like, I want you to be with your daughter. Like, she really misses you. 
and for like that first year he was gone like you know he was just on a like a suicidal mission i don't know it was just weird he's like i'm gonna get out of insurance policy like you guys will be all set and there's just me like begging like i want you to know your kids i want your kids to know you and i was doing the work for him and i'll never do that again never in my life will i, I force somebody to be a parent um, but he comes back into the picture. He's in Arizona, sleeping on the couch, sometimes sleeping in my bed. It just kind of depended. Um, and I relapsed with him. You know, I, I relapsed on alcohol, and a couple weeks later, you know, it's opiates. And then very shortly after that, it's heroin again. Um, and then very shortly after that, I, I shoot up, like he shoots me up for the first time. And that went on, I mean, that went on for two years. You know, I was working at the courts while getting high. Um, I got promoted to like courtroom clerk, right? So I'm like sitting next to the judge. And <laughs> you're just <laughs> manipulating, right? <laughs> like just, you know, dope sick, trying to like, when's my lunch, when's my lunch? Like I need to go, I just go get my dope and come back and shooting up in the courtroom, like not courtroom, but like yeah. court, like bathroom and you know, I remember a time where my my employer, she found me in my car, passed out. And <laughs> it was such a bad situation. I don't know how I was able to maintain the job for that long, let alone like get promoted. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's crazy. Like, it's crazy what we can maintain in active addiction. And I was able to do it for a really long time. It's sort time. of surprising when and you look back on it. You know, it's like, wow, I, I can't believe, because uh, I did the same thing, like really active, using at work and around work, and it's like, you, you know, you ultimately, you know what's go how it's going to end, but it's but it's amazing how, how much how much space you can put between the beginning and the end sometimes, you know? And, and, and the quicker the consequences come, the better. Yeah, I would say. I, I really wish some consequences would have come. <laughs> it could have been a lot easier. Yeah. But then what I have learned, you know, mm. everything happens for a reason. But people just let me get away with it, I think. I think I, I learned how to manipulate so well. And manipulate to the point where I didn't know I was manipulating, right? Like, I manipulated myself to believe I wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, I just, I couldn't maintain that lifestyle anymore. Um, I quit my job, cashed my 401k out. And once that was depleted, um, I remember I, I was receiving messages from somebody who worked in Mexico, right? Um, we didn't really discuss what was going to happen or what went on there. Um, they would discuss it when I got to Mexico. I mean, I'm not stupid. Um, I knew what was going to happen. And I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a single mom who, whose kids go with her everywhere. So my kids went with me, you know, and, um, <clears throat> so we're in Mexico and, um, they, I mean, they tell me what they want me to do and transport for them. And so like we do some practice runs while I'm down there. And what so this is like, these are like, like cartel people basically. Yeah. And they're like, hey, we need you just to go across the border, make a couple, go get some food or whatever, come back. Let, let, let's see how this goes. Right. And so the last time I did that for them, and nothing is in the truck, right? Um, the last time I did that for them, they sent me over to secondary, which is like you have your first checkpoint, and then if they think anything's suspicious, they'll send you over to the second one where they can take the dog around to do further investigation, um, x-rays. 
So I let them know, like, hey, um, you know, this isn't going to be a good idea right now, not with this vehicle. Like, let me go back and get my car, um, and then we'll make a run across the border. Um, they already flagged me, right? And I let them know this. And um, they're like, okay, well, don't worry. Like, we'll have you do something else, right? We'll have you run to Cali. Um, you can get some money there and then transport it back over the border for us, which is still super illegal. Um, yeah. But And the whole you know, time you're rolling around, and, and I'm guessing from what you said earlier, the whole time you're rolling around, your kids are with you in the truck and they're wherever you go. And you're using it this time too, I'm guessing. Okay. Yeah. And they're like supplying me with what I need. And like looking back at everything, I mean, they're smart not to tell me they put drugs in my truck, right? Um, I'm, I'm a, an addicted dope fiend. So. I mean, being, being a fiend myself, it's just nuts. Like I'm hearing this story and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm getting my drugs. There's a, there's a decent chance I'll score like money wise at the end. It's like, you can make sense of it very easily, you know, um, right. in that addict brain. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's challenging sometimes because like we have to come to a point where we process things not in an addict mindset and in, in, in a healing mindset and it, it throws me for a loop sometimes like I did a podcast recently and you know the person interviewing me like we, we were talking about this and whatever I said it just it really triggered me right and I get home that day and um, I, I know I, I know I got in my car and I know I drove home and I know I talked to people in between that um, I didn't realize that happened until Saturday, you know, and this happened Friday. Um, yeah, like that unmanaged trauma and trauma looks however it looks to a person and, and going through a situation where in my head, I'm literally just crossing the border to go to America to drive to California. And um, I get stopped at the border with my kids and there's, you know, 89 pounds of meth in my truck. Like, there, my brain just can't process and, and break that down yet. You know, um, and then I don't necessarily know if there was a ton of trauma for my kids. Possibly we haven't really gotten them into therapy that's going to pinpoint that for them yet. They're still pretty young. Um, but I know there was a ton for me. And I know there's a lot of guilt that's attached to what I did because, you know, the place I'm at today and, and the love I have for my kids and the love I had for my kids then and, and you know, the desire to want to get money to support them. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a, hard, it's a hard space to be in. It's a hard thing to talk about. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, that don't understand addiction in that form. So it's really hard for people to grasp, like, how could a person do that? Yeah, well, you know? yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, being an addict, I totally understand in that addict mentality and also in the healing mentality. I mean, that's, I see when you share that, I see it as empowering. I mean, now I don't, I, I can't even get in the neighborhood of, you know, how you feel about the connection with your two children. And that's, you know, but for me as another person who struggles, it's like, wow. Because again, look at look at you today, uh, and and mm -hmm. and and a lot. Of, I think a lot. Of, I don't think enough women are speaking out. I mean, women are sharing their stories, but I, it is, it is a little more unique, and I think it's a little more pronounced. 
uh, when somebody like you tells a story about getting popped at the border with almost 90 pounds of meth um, with, with their children, somebody who grew up like right. you, somebody who looks like you. It's just not every day. I, I, I guess it's, it's a good thing. Like God, you know, God has jokes and like <laughs> God has a plan and it's not on my terms at all. And like the best thing anybody told me was, you know, you're not supposed to understand God's purpose for you. You're supposed to live it. And if he like gives you little nuggets along the way to like show you some things, great. But like, don't depend on that. Like you just do God's work and you do the program and you know you get some therapy and you are of service to others like, like everything just kind of works out and then on top of it for me i just have this like strong urge to share you know share things that i'm passionate about and if i don't get that out it it's like this toxic buildup, you know and i kept that in for a long time so i got arrested and my, my mom had to come get my kids and it's like you know I don't think I'll ever be able to tell my mom I'm sorry for, for that moment in time, right? Like what mom wants to drive four hours to get their grandkids because their daughter's like, you know, doing stupid stuff. Were you scared to call um, her? Oh, I, well, I didn't have to call her. They called her for me. But okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I gave, I gave them my dad's number at first and they're like, he's not picking up. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but like, I mean, at the end of the day, they, they could have, they should have called CPS, right? Like that would have been, you know, if I were in their place, that would have been the thing I would have done. Um, but by some act of something greater than myself, you know, they called my parents and, and my mom came and got them. No questions asked, like just got them. And, you know, she was mom for a while. She was mom for a couple of years while all this was happening. And I think like one of the biggest humbling parts of all of this is my mom had to file for guardianship because we don't really know where dad's at at this point. And she has the kids and she needs to get them enrolled in school because school's about to start in a month. Um, so she goes and files guardianship at the courts that I was working at. And the commissioner at the time, you know, he sees her last name and he was like, oh my gosh, Miss Racer, is your daughter Megan? And She's like, yeah, and he's like, oh, my God, I worked with your daughter, you know, and there was like this, everything has this weird tying in moment at, at, at this point in my life, right? Um, I mean, it's kind of cool now to look back at it and see how all these pieces are fitting together, but I, I feel like that was a humbling moment because I, I embarrassed my mom, you know, like totally embarrassed her. And, um, but she did it, you know, she, she willingly took my kids in and, and treated them like if they were her own while I wasn't there. Um, so yeah, I mean, my sobriety, like my daily sobriety is just living amends to her for all the you know sacrifices she made to be a mom to my kids and support them and like support me through this journey too. Um, but you know, I, I got out, I got out of the detention center for a little bit after I got arrested. Um, I went to treatment for about four months at a program called Crossroads out here in Arizona. So I got, you know, it was like either you can stay, kill your number, or you can go to treatment. And I'm like, I'm going to treatment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's an out, right? 
Yeah, no question asked. Like I already had the seed planted. I already knew about this program and I loved it. And it was like, oh man. So the way I feel is this is kind of where I was at. So when I got arrested, I went to the Yuma Detention Center and um Oh Yuma, Yuma, Arizona. In, yeah, Yuma, okay, Arizona. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so they put me in isolation because I was detoxing. And I remember like I had just, I had slept most of the night and then I wake up the next day to go to court. Um, oh wait, no. I think it was like the initial meeting or something happened like that. And then I went back and I remember, I remember going back and I'm sitting in isolation and I'm like, I, I have this whole plan, right? It was insane. I'm, I'm sick. I can't control my bowel movements, like I'm vomiting. Um, the shower, like every 16 seconds when you hit the shower button, it turns on and it turns off, right? So every 16 seconds, I'm pushing the button to get hot water, right? And I'm flushing the toilet to make it hot. I like, specifically remember this moment. And I remember like going into the bed, you know, like that was my, my way of like dealing with sickness was just getting hot showers. And I'm laying there and I'm just like, wow, okay. So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to meet the judge, right? And he's going to let me out. He's going to let me out in Yuma. And um, I'm going to go across the border. I'm going to find a gun somehow. I'm going to find a gun. I'm going to shoot somebody for, for doing this to me. And then I'm going to get dope and I'm going to come back to America. And like this is what's replaying in my head all day until I meet the judge again. All day. You're going to seek vengeance on the people who did this to you. Get high, right? It sounds like a movie. I'm going to get high, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that yeah. was like, that's so silly. What yeah. do you mean? Yeah. You know, like, no, it's not going to happen. So actually what's going to happen is um, I got transported to Florence, Arizona, where there's another detention center in the area that I lived in. Um, I waited about a month there, and then I got out to go to treatment. <laughs> So luckily, I mean, I was insane to think having 89 pounds of methamphetamine would qualify me to get out early without some stipulation attached to that. Uh, but you know, it works out the way it's supposed to work out. And I got to go to, I got to go to a really good program. You know, I found, I found my family again when I got sober that time, and I went into treatment. What starts you know, to happen like to you, Megan? Like, what do you start to do that's different than what oh. you did before? And, and how do you start to feel? Like, sometimes I talk about like not having a pink cloud, but I feel like I did for a little bit. Like there was a pink cloud. Cause like what I did was I, every day was just a crying fest for me. Right. Because I'm like facing these severe charges. I have no law, like no idea how long I'm going to, to go to prison for. Right. What's the max? I get my, so after my pre-sentencing interview was seven years max. Okay. And I get that, and I'm like, oh, my God, what? Like, it, was, it varied from, like, 33 months to seven years. And I'm like, wait, what? You know? Um, that's a really wide range of what I could possibly get. And um, so I, it's just this up-and-down journey. I mean, every day I'm at a meeting, right? Every day I'm at a meeting. I remember I met with my attorney at the federal um federal office, right? The federal court office. And, you know, she's like, Megan, listen, you're, kind of, you're going to prison. Like nobody can do what you did and not go. 
Like, I don't care about the circumstances. I don't care what happened. Nobody can go to prison. Nobody, nobody can't go to prison with what you did. Um, and I just remember leaving that meeting with her and I just bawled my eyes out and I, I felt out of control. I didn't know what to do. So I, I knew that there was a meeting going on. I knew it was like the very end of the meeting, but I knew that I could go into that, that meeting hall and there would be a group of people there to welcome me. And I'm just, I'm like crying hysterically. I go inside the meeting, they open up their arms, right? They grab my hand. Oh my, <laughs> sorry, like I'm gonna emotional um they hold my hands and they all just look at me and they know they don't know my situation but they know they know exactly what i'm feeling and after that you know they just they loved me until it was safe for me to go like that i just i felt safe there i didn't feel safe anywhere else i didn't feel safe at home i didn't feel safe anywhere other than like going to a meeting because I could like be vulnerable and express myself. And I had a whole group of people who were supporting me 100%. Like, what do you need? Like, can we have your parents' numbers so we can call and check on them? <sighs> like, can we go to your hearings so the judge knows you have people who support you and we can be there for your mom after you go to prison? Like, who does that? <laughs> Like, because people don't even know me. Yeah. And they're wanting to be there for me. And, and these are people, by the way, if anybody's listening and you don't know addiction or whatever, these are people who crawled into the rooms, you know, in their own way, right? And maybe deeper than you, maybe, it doesn't matter. Their bottom, they crawled into those rooms and now here they are, right? Like, it's, it, it's the most beautiful thing in the world when, it, when, it's, when it's really working. Absolutely. And again, I... I was like, oh, I found my home. Like, this is where I belong. You know, like, this this is me. This is for me. And I was able to, like, run through my steps while, while, I, while I was in treatment, which was good. You know, a lot of that was about the drug and, you know, the alcohol. And so after, after doing that, I, like, I did the Mormon steps, right? I did, <laughs> I did Mormon step work with a sponsor to become more spiritual, right? What are so Mormon steps? Then, so the Mormon religion has their own 12-step program, right? And um, there's like a lot of scripture and stuff in there. And she's like, kind of disregard what you want, but like, let's look into some, yeah. So there's just more spiritual steps. And I was lacking that connection with something greater than myself. And through that experience of losing everything, having no idea how long I'm going to be going to prison for, I found God. I don't I don't think I could have found God any other way. Because like when I got sober the first time, there was a concept and we talked about it and my own understanding and but I just wasn't buying it, you know? And then I saw God working miracles in my life. I saw God bringing people together in my life. And like I saw God working like just in every aspect of my world like i guess i just needed really tangible things to occur to make that happen but i also needed a really big thing to happen in my life to, to be willing to see that it's funny um, Some, sometimes for me i got beaten up so bad right by alcohol and drugs that like i finally started to seek like you did like you start i started to seek god and seek mm -hmm. a spiritual relationship you know and it and it really whew, 
you know, what, what a relief. I mean, I had to have that gift of desperation. And it sounds like in your own right, you get it. But now you got to go to prison. Mm-hmm. And you're sober, I guess, yeah. four months at the time, maybe a little more. Um, yeah, I was, so, I was about seven, almost eight months sober when I went into prison. Yeah, and here um, and here you are. You you go. You, I guess you you meet the love of your life in prison, right? Yeah. I mean that's yeah. a pretty amazing yeah. story. And by the way, yeah. you do such a good <laughs> job of describing relationships, um, because because you're 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 bisexual at this point, and then so you go into prison and you meet, you know, your your partner now. And you said you could have gotten in huge trouble, right? You could you you you, you, you can if you get caught, you're like a sex offender, right? But you said, yeah. it, and I've been I've been through this in early sobriety and 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 sobriety now. It's fucking it's all early, really. I mean, it's every day. Where that's the fix, and you said she yeah. was my fix, and I still. Oh, yeah. So you're still, yeah. Look at that, yeah. So you're still working through that, right? Like, like at the time mm-hmm. when you're like like those those isms, those that mentality of like I've got to get my fix. But this could be the consequence. It's interesting how like mm-hmm. it's an evolution, but it's it happens slowly. It's not drugs oh, and it's people and then right. Yeah, it's the same thing, you know. It's like, listen, if you engage in sexual behavior with another inmate, like you could become a sex offender and we'll move you to the like the hole and you'll you'll have to level up in your incarceration, right? Like I was in a minimum security prison, like I could have lost everything. I mean, if that happened, like I lose all rights to being around my kid. It's just so many bad things could have happened. And it's just like, was I careful? Absolutely. But could I have still gotten caught? Absolutely. You know, like, um, yeah, like you said, when you take the set or when you take drugs and alcohol away, like my go-to is sex. And I don't use like, it was different. Like, this relationship was so different than any relationship I had because I wanted nothing from her, right? We all had nothing. And like, I had my needs met while I was in there. So like, it was based off of actual emotion. And because your, your relationships before were about lifestyle. Right. Yeah. Like, what can you give me? Yeah. It's not like, it's not about emotion, you know? And there was like never a connection with like sex and intimacy that just, it's either like I just didn't know what intimacy looked like anymore, and I was able to learn about intimacy without a sexual, you know, anything sexual attached to it for quite a while with her. You know, and and it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about myself, and it taught me a lot about what I want in a partner. You know, and, and having that relationship, like it opened, it opened a lot of, it opened my eyes because I understood, like I do like men, but like I've always liked women and. You know, even before I went in, like I had explored women and it really gave me an opportunity to see a different side of myself. Um, Aside that I thought I didn't need to really investigate and come to find out like I I wouldn't be where I'm at. I wouldn't be as a whole of a person if I didn't invest some time into figuring out my sexuality. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you know, she was a fantastic human. I met some really amazing women while I was incarcerated. Um, some women who really like held my hand and walked me through some pretty emotional stuff because, um, I was federally indicted. So I was able to do a drug program called RDAP and RDAP is like a residential drug program inside prison. Um, it's a very coveted program and 
most of the women who go through you know the feds if they had a drug or alcohol case attached to like whatever they did um they can get in this program so because i had a drug problem problem i qualified for our oh you sure and, did Oh yeah. <laughs> After, yeah, we'll see. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. don't feel oh, bad. Yeah. Don't feel bad about jumping to the front of the line, right? I mean, no. Yeah. Well, so you know, and it's all based off of stuff, right? So I got a thirty-month sentence. My recommendation was thirty-three months at the end of the, the day by probation. The judge gave me thirty, and I remember the marshal pulling me aside when he was handcuffing me, and he was like, "Listen, I need you to hear me. I've never seen anybody in your situation get thirty months in prison." Like you have something looking out for you and you need to do good. And even the judge, she was like, Miss Racer, I'm going to be watching you. <laughs> like, <laughs> it scares me. Did you yeah. yeah. not watch me? Like, <laughs> legit. She was like, I'm going to be watching your journey. So I've literally had the judge in the back of my head still today, right? Like, she's watching. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So with RDAP, you know, you can get six months up to a year off of your sentence, right? On top of like the good time and stuff. Um, so getting into this drug program is super coveted, but it's also really challenging. Like you have to follow and adhere to all prison rules that are, you know, policy procedure rules as well as the RDAP rules. And there's a lot, there's hundreds of rules you have to adhere to. And if you don't, um, it's like a community type therapy. So like you're literally getting up in front of your community of 70 women. And if you do something wrong, you have to call yourself out and you have to say what you did wrong, like what poor coping mechanism you're using, um, what criminalistic thinking that you're using, like manipulation was always one of mine. And then the whole community comes up and they tell you, <laughs> like why that behavior is bad and you know how it relates to them and what you can do better so it's like this constant you know year of my life of getting and giving feedback like constructive feedback in an assertive way like we learn so much of how to communicate with other people i learned a lot about myself while i was incarcerated through that program um that's an, that sounds like an amazing program, by the way. You don't hear people that go to prison have many stories like that. No. And, you know, the really cool part about the job that I do today, because I work in behavioral health and mental health, I actually got to meet one of the founders of that program. And I'm like, look at me. Gushing yeah. like, about this program. Was it freaking hard and a, a very low point in my life? Absolutely. But, like, it's just like jamming cognitive behavioral therapy down your throat every day. And it really works. <laughs> like, it really works getting called on your stuff, especially when you're manipulative and self-centered and egotistical and all of that, right? Like having your defects put in a mirror in front of you every day and like finding ways to fix that, it, it changed. It changed a lot. It is, I will say this though, it is challenging when communicating with other people, right? Where it's like, hey, I'm able to pit, like pinpoint you're you're victimizing yourself right now, and especially for somebody in that mindset, seeing the world through that lens, it's not an easy it's not an easy lens to take off. I've done a lot of work, right? So there is little patience on my end, and that's one of my defects. Is um, I was in a like this program where it like forced you to look at your stuff every day, and forced you to give feedback and receive feedback. So like. I've had to train myself 
to to understand that the whole world doesn't operate like that. Like, not <laughs> yeah. everybody went to prison, Megan. So what What happens? What happens to you when 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 you leave prison and and you're because you're on this journey to you know now you're basically. You, you, every day you're entrenched on the front lines of helping people with drug and alcohol and mental health. And h- how, do you, how do you get there? Because I don't have too much um, more time left with you. So I want to kind of like, h- how do you okay. get to where you are today? Okay, so when I got out of prison, um, COVID had just hit and I wasn't able to work. But once the COVID restrictions were lifted at the halfway house, it was that um, I I. I just figured out like who works in the treatment industry, right? And I reached out to them, and it just happened to be a person that like, I started actually started a relationship with after prison, like the person that I was in prison with. We broke up, but um, so she gets me a job, right? Like somebody said yes, knowing my background, and I actually work here. I work with this person that said yes to this day for the company I work for, right? And I'll never give him credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a visa ego anymore. But um, he said yes, right? And he had to like they had to do check-ins with my um, probation officer. Like I'm on free trial or not free trial. Like I'm my home confinement. Like I'm still technically an inmate at the point that I go to work for this treatment center. And so they're very willing to help me with the legal side of things. Um, I just I worked my my butt off. You know, I took the grunt job. I took an overnight behavioral health technician job. And where you kind of watch um, watch people, right? You just kind of watch people sleep. sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. all sleep. You watch people sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was like you just you do what you got to do. Like, is this the best job? No. Like, do I want to stay up overnight? Absolutely not. Do I want to work in this industry and go far? Absolutely. So I just, I put the time in, I, I put the work in, like I asked questions, you know, I took the philosophy of the big book and I applied it to everything I do. Like, you know, take the suggestions, pay attention to what's working, find somebody who has what you want and figure out how they got it. And and that's what I did. And I progressively, you know, went from DHT to case manager to admissions um, business development where I'm like building relationships with other treatment centers, um, to the position, you know, I have today where I'm, I'm working business development for Camelback recovery. And I, I hear a lot from people, you know, that was in a, sh- a two year period of like literally tripling my income and like doing what I do. And uh, how, how did you even manage that? Right. And it was like, well, I figured out that business development was a job. I wanted that job and I made it happen. Like that's, you, you figure it out, you ask questions, um, you do what other people are doing, you find your own spin on things. And like, I love networking with people. I love connecting people, right? I'm pretty much an introvert at heart, but if I can connect somebody to treatment, like that brings me so much joy. Like that is better than getting high. Like connecting to humans, who can like have a lifelong relationship or, you know, however long it lasts. But like being a piece of that puzzle, it's like, oh, like that stuff gets me today. Like creating relationships for other people is so amazing. And, you know, I, what like the job I'm doing today, it's just so cool. Cause like the people I work with at Camelback Recovery are the people I started working with in this industry. 
and we've all like became really cool pieces to this puzzle. Like we're at the top of what we do, you know, in each different area that we're at. And I've been mentored by a lot of these guys and they saw potential, you know, they saw the slightest bit of potential. And without that, you know, it would have been much harder. But like, again, just God putting people in my life that need to be in my life. And I feel safe. I feel like a family where I work. I love these people so much. And like, I'm so proud of the work that they've done over this short period of time. And like helping me grow over this short period of time. Um, but it's, I guess the biggest thing I can say is being a hundred percent me and a hundred percent vulnerable keeps away the wrong, like the wrong people. Like if I keep my mouth shut and I, I act in a different way, then I'm going to attract people who aren't right for me. But if I'm my like silly, authentic, weird. <laughs> self, You're right. No, for real. Like, and some people get it. And some people don't. And I'm okay with the people that don't today. You know, I do get some interesting feedback on like LinkedIn, right? For some reason, that's like my weird influencing platform. Yeah, LinkedIn. it is. <laughs> <laughs> you got a shitload of people. Yeah. <laughs> but I love it. I love it because like if, if the people that say these certain things, right? Like not so nice feedback, if they could only dive into my inbox and just see the amount of people that message me with like, Hey, I can't talk about this kind of stuff, but thank you so much for giving me a voice or gosh, you know, my brother just passed away. Like just so many messages of people telling me these just intimate personal things about their lives where it's like, they don't feel like they have a voice to do it or they don't know how to do it or they don't want to do it. And they're just enjoying that somebody else is doing it them you know that's like that kind of stuff that's the coolest stuff to me where it's like i can you know if i can make any kind of positive impact in this type of space you know for the job that i do and then hopping onto the internet putting some like positive words out there you know attaching a cool picture to it right that throws people for a loop and um (laughs) It's, it's, it's neat, you know, and the perspective that I have, it's, I forget sometimes that not everybody has this perspective. Yeah. Right? Well, it's a gift so that we have. Things, it's such a gift. Yeah. When you say some things, people are just like mind blown, but we get so conditioned to just have this as our first response. Um, we forget that like, yeah, okay. No, that used to be my first response. But today it's like, I, I take the silver lining route. For everything. Megan, thank you so much. You're, you're honestly, I appreciate you. You have no idea, and 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 you know, especially after you said you, you, you know, I know how busy you are, and uh, I I appreciate you making the time. Of course, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go get my kids now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna send you this stuff. Um, I'll send you the link when it's up. It'll be up uh, n- not too long from now, probably tomorrow or, or later today. But thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network 
Production. Production.